Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. For December 20th, 2019, I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me today, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, and it'll be evening soon. I'm coming to you a little bit early because it is the holidays. Uh, this Sunday, um, first day of Hanukkah, I've learned. And then, of course, uh, people sometimes celebrate Christmas a little early, particularly when it's on a weekend. So we decided to go a bit early um, also, we're really excited about our guest tonight for the second time, uh, but hopefully not nearly the last, uh, David Jonas, the author of Spitball, The New Art of Our Politics. He's going to come on and talk about the next two chapters of the book, but even more so, he wrote three special pieces that aren't a part of the book since we last had him on. So we got like five things to talk to him about. So here in um, you know, 20, 30 minutes into the show, David's going to call on in. And we'll be excited to um, speak to him. But until then, we've got all kinds of political topics because in the afternoon, you have one of the most historical events uh, happening. And then later on, you have um, a debate which actually has been um, pretty positively reviewed, if you will, for being a debate, I guess you'd say. Um, but, Tim, let's start with the impeachment. Uh, I don't think it came as a surprise because you could tell the inertia was there. But uh, then you start seeing how many people that were in sort of what you call the swing districts. And I really don't know that this is much of political calculus. I think this is more of a, a right and wrong decision um, for a lot of folks. But you could tell that the impeachment was going to happen, and sure enough, it was almost – Unanimous bipartisan line sans about three or four people, um, you know, impeaching Donald Trump on two counts, um, obstruction of justice and um, abuse of power. Um, Tim, you, I think, watched more of the uh, speeches and whatnot. Uh, what were your thoughts? Well, it was a testy day, uh, to say the least. Uh, I, I was fortunate to be able to watch a lot of it. Uh, the contrast was something I noticed between the two sides uh, during this six-hour debate. The, the contrast was stark. One side was measured and calm, uh, going about their business, talking about why they were doing what they were going to do. And the other side was basically screaming and throwing out well, some pretty wild stuff. I mean, uh, I jotted some things down, as a matter of fact, as it was going on, and naturally one of them came from uh, Georgia, uh, Barry Loudermilk, um, from down in the 11th District, for those of you that don't know him, and for those of you that don't know him, consider yourselves among the fortunate. Um he uh, was comparing this impeachment to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
Bill Johnson uh, from in the 6th District up there in Ohio, he actually asked for a moment of silence for the 63 million Trump voters. Uh, as, as if, what, they had all been killed? I, I don't know what he was trying to say there. Russ Fulcher over in Idaho from the 1st District, he actually, you're going to love this one, David, he stood there and said nothing. He he, he got up, he said, I'm going to, uh, you know, give you the legal reasons the Democrats did this. And then he stood there and said nothing for his entire allotted time with the whole house standing there looking at him. Uh, Louis uh, Gomer, uh, uh, I just say that name, and, and that's funny, over in the 1st District of Texas, he started that Ukraine conspiracy nonsense. And he also pronounced that the country's end is now in sight. Uh, Mike Kelly up in Pennsylvania in the 16th Congressional District compared the impeachment to Pearl Harbor. Now, I really don't know where he was going with that one. Uh, and Trump, of course, he had to chirp in, too. And he compared it to the Salem witch trials. And, I, you know, right there, David, I, I thought, well, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's accuse Trump of being a witch and, and hang a millstone <laughs> around his, his ankles and throw him in, in, in the local uh, body of water, in that case, the Potomac River. And if uh, he, he floats, he's... Uh, Guilty, and if he thinks he's he's innocent, so let let let's just let's just do it like the Salem witch trials. Uh, you know what else I noticed, David? Not one soul, and Chris Matthews made mention of this. Not one soul defended Donald Trump's character. Not one soul said all day that he was the sort of man who who just would not do something like he was being accused of. Not not one soul said he was a good and honest man. They spent all day attacking uh, not the facts, but but the procedures. Um, it, it was something to view. Yeah, and, and all those egregious things, I had seen them. Also, Phil Bryant apparently echoed that um, – Pearl Harbor comparison, which was just really, um, it just didn't fit. I mean, that those two things are not analogous at all. And then Barry Loudermilk with the comparing it to Jesus Christ. Um, That's exactly. Yes, and, That's and Trevor Noah on Daily Show picked up on that. And then, of course, a minister, I, I believe a Catholic minister, really laid that out and talked about, you know, all the, the the ways procedurally that Donald Trump's been afforded far more legal rights than Jesus Christ. But then most importantly in my book, one lived 33 years without sin and was the chosen savior of God sent to earth. And one's Donald Trump, need I say more. Um, you, you know, I mean, you just – you do, do not – in in society in the world if you know anything about Jesus Christ you don't compare yourself to him because you realize you're human and it's just so egregious 
um, you know, what happened there. And unless this seems like a good time to segue into this, then yesterday, I guess very late in the day, um, Christianity Today, a publication started by Billy Graham um, called for the um, impeachment or removal of Donald Trump as president. Um, and then, of course, he tore out after uh, Christianity Today, showing that he had no understanding uh, of that publication and their history either. Uh, the interesting thing will be, at what point does he attack that publication so in the legacy of Billy Graham? And Franklin Graham actually grows a spine and stands up to him. Um, I, I don't know. Oh, oh, wait. Uh, but what oh, was your wait. thoughts you... on that? Oh wait, you mean you mean Christianity Today is not a far left wing publication like uh, Trump said? Gee, well, I, it, I, I, I thought, it, I thought world, he called somebody. <laughs> if you if you stand up for right and wrong, that makes you far left. If you actually oh, want to yeah. have some rules, I guess that makes you far left. That you that's know. you know if you excuse everything Trump does, I guess you're a conservative now. But if you actually you know, Hold him to some standards. You're far you, left now. You know, it, it's beyond that with Trump. It, it, either you're with him, or, or you're 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 an enemy. You're you're an enemy of America. You're a traitor. You're you're you, you know. I've seen on social media Democrats being accused of being communists this week, and at the same time, I saw. Uh, a caricature of a donkey with, with a swastika right in the middle of it, indicating that the the Democratic Party was a bunch of Nazis. Uh, the you, you know, pick out all the worst enemies of America, and anyone who opposes Donald Trump is, is, is that. Uh, so you know. Uh, notice he when he's saying he was impeached, he said they impeached. Us. That's what he said in his little speech up in Michigan. They impeached us. No, they didn't impeach us. They impeached you, pal. But have you ever noticed when something's good, it's I, me, and my with Trump. But if something's bad, it's we with Trump. Uh, the, the, the guy's predictably nutty. He he really is predictably nutty. Yeah, so much there. Um, I, the funniest thing they they compared the Democratic Party to Nazis. I'm not so so sure how Hitler would have felt about such a multicultural uh, Nazi party. Um, he probably wouldn't be for that, from what I understand. No, no, um, I, I wouldn't and then say so. <laughs> no, and Brad Parscale, his campaign manager, apparently sent out something in the last 24 hours. Are you a uh, Democrat, or are you an American? Um, and I feel like I've choice words for that. Uh, and it's so just so ridiculous how he's behaving. And, and to me, Jared Nadler had um, the representative from New York. He made a great point, although um, the Republicans didn't, I don't think, understand how he was meaning it. He said, you realize who becomes president if Donald Trump is removed. And that's the part I really don't understand about the Republican Party. I know they've tried to entangle – I'm talking about the Trump administration, Mike Pence in some way, but I'll say this. I, I don't think uh, it, Mike Pence drove this straight. Um, 
And that's the thing. Why do the Republicans want to defend Donald Trump so when they could get Mike Pence and then they could try to say, well, all the things you love about what's going on you get with Pence, but you get none of the scandal. You don't get the commander in chief. Um, it's Rick this Riley. Is cult now. It's a cult following now. No, and, 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 it, 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 it's sense. not about the party with yeah. these people. It's about Trump. They, they, Trump has put his followers, uh, as we talked about last on last week's show, into all the key leadership positions everywhere. He already had those hardcore voters. Now he's got hardcore followers. Uh, you know, everywhere they they have inundated and totally enveloped that party, and they have pushed anyone who opposes them. Uh, out of a position of leadership, or in some cases out of the party altogether. That is now Donald Trump's party. They are going to, in unison, uh, speak with one voice for Donald Trump, even those in Washington, and there were plenty of them who had some choice words to say about Donald Trump uh, when he was running, uh, would not dare say anything against him now for fear of their own jobs. I, I mean, that's exactly what it is, and everybody knows it. So uh, the question is on this impeachment stuff, uh, now what? Because Speaker Pelosi uh, threw a little something into the mix, too, didn't she, with this holdup? Yeah, let's talk about that procedural um you know, move, if you will. And so, um, you know, she doesn't have to send the articles of impeachment over immediately, which with the Christmas recess, um, you know, and I guess that'll go what slightly after the new year, it would make sense to hold it over for there, but theoretically she could continue to hold it. Um, I guess we kind of know where it's going because Mitch McConnell has just been completely open about it. Um, Politically, how do you think that placed him? Well, I don't know. You know, it would it would seem to me that most of the American people would like to hear from all the pertinent witnesses. Uh, I, I understand why the House committees didn't uh, try to press getting them to come testify because uh, they were going to make them go to court and. You, you know, it would have gone on and on like, like Trump's former attorney. It took nine months for the court system to finally say, uh, yes, uh, he, he, you know, he, he has to answer a, a, a summons. Uh, and, and by that time, those committees had, had finished meeting. Uh, this could go on forever if they did that, and apparently no one wants a lengthy impeachment fight which would uh, go on deep into the presidential campaign and and, and might just uh, overwhelm the campaign itself and emerge as, as the only issue, which is apparently what Trump and them would like to have. Uh, now, there is this. How long is she going to hold them? Because you you alluded to it, and and I believe I believe that's right. Mitch McConnell is not going to allow uh, any of Trump's inner circle to come 
and testify in any impeachment trial. Trump claims he wants it, but unless he's crazy, he really don't. Because if, say, Nick Mulvaney had to go in there and tell what he knows, it, it would be probably be damning evidence against Trump. It would be like a nail-in-the-coffin type thing. So what is Speaker Pelosi's gambit here? She has to know that Mitch McConnell is not going to give in on this. She also knows at the same time that this delay is just enraging Trump. I wonder if they could delay long enough to compel some of these witnesses to come forward and, uh, you know, appear before these House committees. Again, because even though they, you know, the impeachment has happened, they could still do that. But I don't look for anybody to go go to the Senate as a as a fact witness. Do you? Yeah, I don't know that there'll be many more uh, hearings in the House or what have you. Um, I think at this point, the House, where Democrats have control, probably need to try to pass some bills that, of course, will die in the Senate, but some actual issue bills now because they've done what they can on impeachment, and now it's time to say, look, this is the plan we have for the American people because there are you know, a percentage or at least parts of a lot of people that actually do at some point say, hey, there are things we need to get done as Americans. I thought it was really funny when Mitch McConnell spoke Friday morning, um, and I actually happened to catch this part. Uh, live on TV, where he talked about how fast the trial had moved through the House and how the Democrats had done it in record time. And I thought, you know, Mitch McConnell's accusing the Democratic Party of being so efficient with government. Um, Can we just bottle this for a campaign ad? Because isn't that always their claim that government's so inefficient and the Democrats are do-nothings? But this time, we were so fast and we did so much wouldn't it be nice to be in control of more things so we could actually pass uh, real bills on issues? Well, uh, did well, you see that part? <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, well, then what? What? What is Pelosi's idea here for for holding the articles? What? 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 What is she hoping to achieve? I don't know what the end game is. I mean, I think you have to be resigned to the fact that Mitch McConnell is going to do some form of dismissal, if you will. Whether it's just a vote of guilty, innocent, and they find him innocent, or if it's some you know big procedural thing where they try to expunge the record and change the history books, like they can really do that. Um, but you know whatever they decide to do, um, you know you just know that Mitch McConnell has control. Yep. And and he's yeah, probably uh, I mean you can't pass it on fast election, but he's probably gonna have control over the Senate but, after the election as well. But but I also know that Nancy Pelosi has to be given her due. She is one of the most skillful, knowledgeable politicians of the the last generation that that's 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 been in Congress, uh she knows a whole, whole lot about what she's doing, and I don't think she does anything going off on a tangent. I don't think she does anything without a plan, and she had a reason for doing this. I just wish we could define it because she's got some idea as to why she wants to hold it. Yeah, well, I think at worst – 
it's kind of like a, in a football game where you call a timeout. You may not know the play, but you know you don't want to call the play in the next 25 seconds. You know that Christmas is coming up. I could rush them over in the next, you know, 24 hours. But it's okay. I can hold them through the holidays. And then if I want to, when we reopen, we reconvene in early January, I can send them over if I want to. But maybe in that week to two-week period, a better plan will come up. So why not wait? I mean, I think that's like, at worst, that's their plan. And that's not a bad plan because rushing them over within 24 hours, you know, wouldn't have gotten us really anywhere anyway. And so why not just take the pause over the break and then see. Now, does she hold them till March? I really don't think she does. Uh-huh. I don't think she holds them indefinitely. Um, uh-huh. Unless some end game reveals itself. Do you see an end game for holding them, say, into the spring or longer? No, no. Uh, I, I don't see I don't see her holding them until Iowa, uh, you know, the first week in February. I think whatever's going to be done is probably going to be done by then. But something must have come up that looked pretty intriguing, uh, something that might change or something. And it could be as simple as what you said. Well, why not hold them through the holidays and just see what shakes out of the tree? But I, I just wonder if perhaps there's a witness or something that they're talking to or 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 you know something along those lines uh it, it's just uh it's just very intriguing to me david it, it really is yes well let's go ahead and continue to kind of move through um we had a debate last night it was i don't know what number debate we're up to i think we're past the rocky movies and the number are equal to it, and the number of debates. This one had the fewest candidates, um, but it did have, I guess, all of the major players on stage. And, and it was kind of seen as the uh, most debate-like debate, with, I guess, the wine cave moment being the yeah. um, you know, top story, if you will. Uh, give us your thoughts on what happened last night. Well, you, you 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 were right. There were seven people on the stage. You had Yang, Buttigieg. Uh, Warren, Biden, Sanders, Klobuchar, and Steyer, I believe I got them all. Um, I, I, you know, one, one thing I thought of immediately, you know, no Cory Booker uh, and, and, and no Castro. I, I don't see how they can stay in, and I think Bloomberg also missed an opportunity get it, getting in as late as he did because his, poll, his polling looks pretty good early. He could have qualified uh, – for this debate and been on stage. Uh, the debate itself did flow more smoothly, I thought, uh, with the smaller group of participants. Um, it, it, they, they all got to say a lot more, and, and as I'll uh, mention in just a minute, it really especially helped one of the candidates. It, it wasn't as combative as the former debates, at least in the first part of the debate, but it got going pretty good in the second part of the debate. You know, uh, Buttigieg and Warren went at it pretty hard uh, about rich donors, and then we got into wine caves, and, and uh, oh, boy. Um, Klobuchar uh, 
and and, and Buttigieg later on uh, went went at it pretty hard too. So if anyone was targeted last night, it was Buttigieg, and I think it was because of the uh, good polling numbers that he's had, uh, especially in the state of Iowa. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about that real quick. The the polling numbers. The poll numbers nationally, Joe Biden is the leader. The poll right. numbers in Iowa, the first contest, Buttigieg is the leader. Joe Biden right. was attacked very little, um, and it seems like people are looking at this race in, let's talk about the first chapter, let's not talk about the book. Um, they're seeing like we got to take Mayor Pete down since he's leading in Iowa. Not we got to take down Joe Biden. He's leading nationally. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, that's a good uh, question. Uh, uh, it, for those that watched it last night, um, it, we saw a different Joe Biden actually on the stage. Um, he seemed to be more at ease. He was smiling, joking. Uh, even his uh, uh, back and forth with Bernie Sanders about uh, Medicare for All was, was was a crisp, good back and forth between between the two. Um, I, I know Buttigieg was attacked specifically because of that front-runner status in Iowa. He had to be. You know, he's got a lot of people on the ground there. I think that's one thing that has helped his polling numbers in that state. He has really worked that state over very well. Um, he, 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 he may very well prevail up there. Uh, and that could propel him right into New Hampshire, where he could knock a couple of candidates out. Biden's firewall is South Carolina. We know that now. Um, I, if we are, are we? Do you want me to go on, go on and tell you who I thought won yeah, and lost? Or? Go ahead and do that because there's somebody that yeah definitely she gets mentioned every debate, uh, and then there's the yeah. where. Uh, so talk about that. Well, Klobuchar won the debate, I thought. She got to talk a lot more. And she the most. Very, yeah. very, very, very good last night. She she was just really good. She's been good in spots earlier, but she didn't get to talk as much. She seemed to be a little bit more nervous, almost frantic in the earlier debates, and she's just getting better and better in these things, and she was really good last night. Another winner it would have to be Joe Biden, easily his best debate. If you had seen him in the earlier debates and then last night, you wouldn't have even thought it was the same person, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. And you know who else had a good debate? Yang. He had a he had a very very good debate. He gave some very very good answers, especially when he was asked the question about why you know did the absence of persons of color on the stage other than him you know make the Democratic Party look bad? And he and he, and he gave a very thoughtful and good answer to that. Um, I. I 
Bernie Bernie Sanders didn't have a good night last night because you know everything is about railing against the rich with him. Everything. Uh, there weren't any big losers in this debate, though. I thought they all showed up pretty well, and they and they all made their points. But but uh, where's Klobuchar's uh, big poll numbers to go with this? Well, and that's what I was going to say. Not this debate, because of course it could be that she, you know, that she has her bounce finally. But she's had good debates before. And she never yeah. gets a bounce. And I do have a theory. When I was reading about the debate on Twitter last night, um, everything was, oh, Amy Klobuchar is really going after Mayor Pete. I think she's going to get out her comb. Oh, she's going to take out her salad comb on somebody. Yeah. And, and people were saying just what you were saying, oh, she's doing great. But then it was throwing the salad comb story in there. And that's, uh-huh. of course – the one seminal inst- instance of a, you know, leaked pattern or whatever you want to say, that she's very tough on her staff. And I think yeah. for a lot of folks, that story has become a non-starter for folks supporting her. They might like to support her, but they're like, you know, she's really that mean to her staff because everybody, I guess, has had a tough boss, somebody they, they didn't enjoy working for, and they're like, eh, I don't want to make that person president. And I don't know if it's true or not. I've never worked for her. I've never been in person with her. So all I've seen is TV, so I have no idea. Um, and, and But I think that that sense is there with a lot of particularly insider folks because that's who's talking about these things. Yeah. And that's really causing her not to get traction. We would talk about this further, but we got to move on uh, to something very exciting, and that is our guest, David Jonas, David, welcome back to the Kudzu Vine. Well, it's an honor, an honor to be back with you. Yes, well, you've been busy. Not only since we had you on in the late summer, you've published two chapters of the book and three stories. Um, And we're going to try to get all five in, and we're going to start off with this book. Um, But kind of a question about both chapters. Um, I noticed that both were kind kind of depressing about our democracy, um, about core beliefs not being strong and, uh, you know, you have to rig the game to win. When you were writing these two chapters, were you kind of depressed? Not personally, but about the uh, state of our democracy. <laughs> well, I, I should note, first of all, that I've been extremely prolific because I also had a baby girl. We had a daughter uh, about a month ago, so uh, it's been – it's been a very fun uh, time to be uh, observing politics and uh, growing my little family. Uh, the 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 thing about it being depressing, I'll say this: uh, that's the number one thing my mom tells me after she reads these pieces. I don't think my intention is to be depressing, and actually, I find writing about these things to be, I don't know, uh, uplifting and clarifying. It, it it actually makes me feel better about politics to write about these things, but it's not meant to be depressing. I don't find it depressing. I think that our politics are very distressing right now. And when I write and when Kagan and I write our pieces, I think we're trying to diagnose accurately. So if, if the writing is depressing, it's probably because the issue itself isn't going well or the trajectory, you know, the, the two, the two chapters are largely about, um, you know uh, the trade-offs that voters make between 
moral beliefs and political beliefs and how often the political beliefs can trump the, the moral beliefs. And then also about, uh, you know, the, the, the arc of history of American history and trying to rig the game so that only a certain subset of voters uh, have, have real power or that their votes are accentuated. So I don't find it depressing. I find it very much in line with the American story. And if uh, I think uh, anybody who's ever been a civil war buff uh, I could make the same thing. Wow, this is kind of a depressing topic, <laughs> but a lot of people still find it fascinating and see how it can illuminate uh, the current debate on things. Yeah, so I just said I noticed in the comments too some people had commented that. But, uh, you know, hopefully we can use this time to learn from it and, and reset a, a set of ground rules that both parties can play by. Well, let's get into the uh, chapter four. Your core beliefs are weaker than you think. Now, not the whole chapter, but initially in the chapter, you talk about the religious uh, right and, and how – and I think back. You know, They had Pat Robertson, and they had uh, Mike Huckabee, and they've had um, Rick Santorum, people that actually, I guess, more or less lived their faith. Now they're seemingly just as sold into Donald Trump, which uh, Mr. Two Corinthians is not uh, living that faith, um, so to speak. And yet they support him probably more greatly than they did any of those other three individuals. Um, what did you find here why uh, religious right Republicans have sold so hard into a Donald Trump-like figure? Well, I think there are two things to consider. First, I think Donald Trump was the first time probably in my lifetime where – Evangelical voters, particularly, were asked to make a real trade-off. Right? You can you can see that um, whether it was Mitt Romney or John McCain or George W. Bush, uh, there wasn't as much of a chance for them to make that moral trade-off. Right? You could, you know, however you feel about those guys' politics, um, you know, Mitt Romney, John McCain, George W. Bush. These are generally people who I think more or less seem to be kind of morally good people. I, I, I disagree greatly with all of their political decisions, and I think a lot of times, um, especially George W. Bush, led us uh, down a really treacherous path, but they still comported to kind of the evangelical moral code, and Donald Trump was the first time that they've ever had to make this real trade-off, and it was just kind of a lesson And wow, there really wasn't as much substance there as we might have thought. Uh, you know, why – why are they willing to make that trade-off, at least in, in the chapter that I wrote? It's because there's kind of a larger – and now it's becoming a little more common sense – but kind of a larger um, uh, political demand that these people have, um, you know, kind of this, this long-running uh, uh, political power that diminished under Barack Obama, and I think they were looking to reassert it. And they saw Donald Trump as a as a uh, you know a fighter and somebody who would fight for that evangelical power structure, maybe not that moral uh, uh, structure, but would fight for the power structure. And it's hard to argue that it hasn't been reasserted. Uh, you know, they've taken over the courts, um, or there's been a large reassertion of that power on the courts. And it just goes to show that the moral the moral demands were probably I wouldn't say hollow, but they were very subordinate to the political and power demands. Yes. Well, now this is something related to that, but it was not – it did not occur before you wrote the chapter, so I guess it would be more of a postscript. 
uh, just yesterday, Billy Graham's uh, publication, Christianity Today, actually came out against Donald Trump, called, you know, supported the impeachment, called for him to not, you know, step down or be removed as president. Um, this is not by any means a, a, a even a progressive Christian publication. It's more of a, a mainline. Um, but yet they have broken and actually stood up for something. Their core beliefs seemingly are stronger than we might think. Um, what did that say as far as what do you think it will happen with evangelical voters and um, Christianity Today actually breaking with what's been going on the past two years? Well, first of all, I think, I think it kind of proves my point in a way, which is to say if they had written a headline five years ago – uh, that said, we don't like Donald Trump, uh, most of us wouldn't even be news. The fact that there's an evangelical voice out there that's going to break from Donald Trump and it's, it's breaking news, I mean, it just goes to show you how much of a conversion has really happened there. So it kind of proves my underlying point. Uh, in terms of what's going to happen with evangelical voters, I mean, I just think, I think that, uh, and I certainly have evangelical friends who aren't uh, fans of uh, President Trump, but and will maybe vote for him grudgingly, but they'll still probably vote for him. Uh, you see this throughout the discourse. And Carly Fiorina had a quote the other day saying something to the effect of, uh, "Oh, I, I don't like Donald Trump. I think he should resign. He should be impeached. I mean, even if she didn't go that far." And then the you know interviewers followed up, said, "Well, are you going to vote for him?" And she said, "Oh, yes, probably. I'll probably vote for him." So it's tough because if you're in the evangelical community, not only is there just this tremendous um, internal pressure to support President Trump, and you know there's a lot of kind of wishful, you know, there's kind of just some motivated reasoning in following him. But I think it's also difficult because, uh, you know, what are your alternatives? Or your your alternative is to either not vote or it's to vote for a, a Democrat. And you know, I, I like to think that I'm somebody who would uh, vote for a person regardless of party. If if you know if the Democrats nominated uh, Kanye West or somebody who's just not Fit to be the president, fit to be president. But um, again, when, when voters are asked to make trade-offs, um, they usually side with the ones that preserve political power. And so, if that holds true, then evangelicals are certainly going to remain in Trump's camp. And I, I, if anything, I think he'll get a larger share of the evangelical vote in 2020 than he did in 2016. Interesting to follow. Now, one more thing for the chapter, but a different topic. You talked about the youth vote, and it's seemingly, you know, the youngest portion of voters, 18 to 29, a little over a third of them, around 37%, vote Republican. Because, of course, the narrative is all, you know, younger voters are, are progressive and democratic. But there's still that third or a little more than a third that are, you know, Republican. And um, one thing I noticed where the – particularly even 2018 when the vote was up. Where um, the youth vote uh, turns out in big numbers, um, the vote the voters that are Republican that are young will show up. Or I'm sorry, when it's down, then the voters that are Democratic don't show up. Um, what did you find out about that? Like, why will those younger Republican voters show up no matter what, whereas uh, the more progressive Democratic younger voters vacillate uh, based on you know turnout trends? Well, that, that's a, it's an interesting question. I think that predominantly, and the chapter four goes into this, which is younger voters tend to be, especially on the Democratic side, uh, tend to be harder to turn out and are less reliable. 
because of some of the moral uh, political trade-offs that are asked to be made, right? A lot of those folks will turn out for a Bernie Sanders or they'll turn out for somebody who kind of fits their, you know, Barack Obama, somebody who fits their, um, you know, kind of, ah, this is a, a moral person who I can give my stamp of approval on. Uh, I think for younger Republican-leaning voters, I think a lot of them are tend to be better educated and tend to be – or at least have a higher uh, educational attainment level. Uh, I've gotten a lot of education in my life, and I don't think I'm much smarter than other people. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of those people, uh, a lot of those younger voters are probably just very aware and already kind of locked in to um, a team and to a voting behavior. Uh, uh, you know, They're just – um, they're, they're probably more overwhelmingly evangelical. Um, I, I'd have to do a bigger di- dive into the data, but um, you know that's a very. I mean, again, you said 37 uh, percent. That's not sustainable. And in 2020, uh, you know, I think 2020 is going to be close. But if young people show up, I think I think the Democrats will have a very very good cycle. The fact is, is um, younger voters just vote at such a high clip for Democrats that uh, if you can convince them not to vote third party, uh, just come out. You know, if they come out, uh, the, the numbers just increase. We saw that in Virginia last couple electoral cycles. Just the youth vote has just been off the charts, and uh, Democrats have really reaped the re- reaped the rewards as a result. Yes. Now, your next chapter, Chapter 5, you have to rig the game to win the game, kind of reminds me of a a saying I'd hear in wrestling by Jim Cornette and Roddy Piper, um, just when you think you got us beat, we change the rules. Um, That's kind of what reminds (laughs) me of. And then, of course, uh, you did some gerrymandering talk where it's like they don't pick, uh, you know, you don't pick the candidates, the uh, candidates pick their voters. Um, When you looked at the gerrymandering, does it look like there's some things that may make it better, or is it going to continue on like this infinitum? Well, there's certainly some hope. Uh, let me lead with the depressing part. The, the Supreme Court ruled in um, a case earlier this year, Rucho, um, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, basically that um, the, the Supreme Court doesn't uh, – you know that gerrymand partisan gerrymandering presents such a political question that it's not the place of the justice to rule on that. Uh, now you can still um, you can still challenge gerrymandering on racial grounds. Again, in Virginia, they had um, in Virginia and North Carolina, they've been able to throw out uh, they've been able to throw out maps based off of gerrymandering based on racial lines. But if it's just a pure partisan gerrymander. Uh, the, the Supreme Court has said they won't do anything. So to me, that sounds like if I'm in Texas or I'm in Florida, that's a green light, right? That is a green light to gerrymander to your heart's content. Uh, just be very, very clear you're not using race as a proxy for party or what have you. Uh, you know, I think you will see on individual state level, um, I think you'll see a lot of states starting to pass more redistricting commissions and more nonpartisan and more independent gerrymandering. I think the political will is there. The problem is is that it becomes asymmetrical, right? New York passes uh, independent redistricting, but Texas doesn't. Well, guess who wins at the end of the day? Uh, Texas gets more representation in Congress than New York in that scenario. So I think that what's nice is the political um, the the political appetite for gerrymandering reform has never been higher. I mean, this used to be just such a, a backwater issue, and I, I I just see such a much more of an intense focus on it. But, um, you know, this next decade, 
this next decade, I think, is going to be a little bit of a of of uh, you know a race to the bottom. Uh, you know, some places will be racing to the bottom, and some places will be racing to the top. Uh, so it'll be a very mixed bag, in my opinion. Yes, that's very true. Where some people, you know, states decide to be high-minded and they're more one party, and then the other uh, don't, and you get a more skewed Congress. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim because he's got three different pieces he wants to ask you about. Tim? Oh, good evening, Mr. Jonas. Thank you for being on again with us. Uh, Of course. Obviously, Wednesday's event (laughs) sent shockwaves through the political world. But but I wanted to ask you something that you've written about since you've written, uh, especially in your column, Beware Polling in a Hurricane. You, you, you talked about impeachment. And, and my question is this. How will the average voter view this impeachment 11 months down the road when it's time to vote uh, if this plays out as we pretty much think it's going to play out. Will it be important, or, 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 or will it not be that much on voters' minds when they go to uh, mark their ballots? Well, if I knew how large political events resonated with voters about a year later, I would have uh, the world's uh, most famous political consulting and polling company uh, because <laughs> I'd be able to make uh, hundreds of millions of dollars because that's literally – I mean there's already been tons of articles about – you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, and everybody uh, polling and trying to basically figure out just that. Uh, let me give you my my uneducated uh, 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 opinion on what what it all means. Uh, first of all, as I wrote in that piece, um, polling in a hurricane is not wise. Uh, that's a quote from longtime political uh, pollster and analyst uh, Stuart Rothenberg. Is you know. Um, uh, not only are things just changing so much, but you just don't know down the line how it's going to fare. But he- here's kind of just from what I've seen so far. It's this. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not good for a president to be impeached. All things being equal, you do not want to be impeached. <laughs> and so uh, there's this weird kind of uh, you know, a lot of people like to play this 3D chess. Oh, the president wants to be impeached so that he can. I, I just don't. I just don't buy that. I just think you're. You're again. I, I hesitate to use the word average voter because that's not who matters. What matters is the marginal voter in the marginal swing state um, who can either be persuaded to stay home or stay, you know, stay home or to come out and everything like that. But yes, uh, being impeached is bad, and I think that generally carries through. Uh, I would say with the voters that matter the most, i.e., you know, a swing voter or, uh, in Wisconsin. Or a voter in Arizona who, um, you know, is unaffiliated, generally doesn't like either party, but but uh, could be convinced to to step forward. I think there's two things at play. Uh, one is, can you tie impeachment to something greater, which is, um, you know, um, whether it's the political corruption issue or it's the unfitness issue. I mean, it largely depends how, let's say, the nominee is Joe Biden, and they have a $200 million budget. What kind of ads are they running, um, or what's the grassroots strategy look like? I mean, quite frankly, if you put me in charge of a Democratic campaign, I'm not sure I would run a single ad on impeachment. That will just be in the background. I would take $200 million, and I would find every farmer in every district 
who um, is losing their farm or is in financial distress and um, look, had them look right at the camera and said, you know, Donald Trump lost me my family farm. It's been in the family for five generations. Uh, I, think, I think impeachment will largely be baked in. What isn't baked in is, um, you know, kind of these demobilization strategies and these mobilization strategies. What are you doing to get the nominal, um, the marginal Trump voter to stay home? And what are you doing to get that nominal Biden voter or Warren voter or Buttigieg voter to come out? Um, mm-hmm. Insofar as impeachment plays into that, I just don't see um, I just don't see campaigns using it that much. So maybe mm-hmm. it won't be that big of a deal at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think it is a big thing. deal in the large scope. I think it's a very very big deal in the large scope of history, right? Twenty years, fifty years, hundred years from now, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I think this country will be very glad that they put that asterisk on his presidency. But um, in terms of how it plays out in 2020, oh, I'd love to be paid, uh, you know, uh, $200 an hour to answer that. Uh, but I don't think I've got a great uh, answer for that. But 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 in this in the same column, um, beware polling in a hurricane. You cited example after example of where polling on unfolding major news events often would change quickly as the event moved forward. Uh, and and your your warning was to not read too much into these initial polls, but but I was going to ask you in this age of tribalism, and we're certainly in one of those. Is it possible that in the case of impeachment, that the polls might remain rather steady throughout this process because well. Most people have have really made their minds up, but before the fact, it's possible. I mean, the the polling since I wrote that piece, you know, I wrote that piece kind of when um, some of the more uh, you know freshman moderate Democrats started to kind of uh, signal that they'd be willing to you know launch an inquiry and everything mm-hmm. like that. The polls since then have been pretty steady. Uh, and I guess we'll probably start to see over the next couple of days polling now that impeachment now that it's actually happened, how people will feel. Um, I I would anticipate there being a slight tick towards Donald Trump in general. Whenever you pass a bill, whenever you do anything, there starts to be some buyer's remorse. I bet you there's a lot of uh, <laughs> you pulled people on like new car purchases. Oh, I love this car. I love this car. I love this car. They buy the car. Yeah, but the car's not as great as I was hoping it would be. Uh, I think there there might be a little bit of buyer's remorse, but you know the, the 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 problem is so much of that is well what question are you asking are you questioning are you asking whether the president should be impeached are you asking whether the president should be removed from office are you asking whether um, you know instead of holding a trial Mitch McConnell should have to take up some of the bills that the Democratic House passed and actually do his job um, you know. Republicans probably have polling on the other side. Should Democrats stop impeaching and get back to legislating? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it, it's just so hard to know what frame of reality that that uh, a voter or somebody is actually using to 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 do that. But insofar as opinions about Donald Trump are baked in, yeah, I mean, I see, I think that cake is baked. It's just about finding the most effective frame, um, um, whether you support him or whether you're against the most effective frame. And uh, that's why I, uh, that's why I think it's probably going to start drifting away from impeachment to other things. Because I just think they're more they're better frames for for both sides. Mm-hmm. 
You know, Mr. Jonas, you've already alluded to this when you were talking with David a little bit, but and we talk about the state of North Carolina a whole lot on this show because it's basically right next door to it, and we view it as a state that may be, say, 10 years ahead of Georgia, what North Carolina is doing now, perhaps Georgia will do in 10 years. And, and you wrote a, 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 some excellent stuff uh, about the state of North, North Carolina where Republican engineer gerrymandering had, had created districts so favorable that even the blue wave last year did, didn't uh, uh, phase them, really. And, and you, were, you were warning Democrats that Perhaps the results in North Carolina didn't look as good as Democrats were perceiving they did. But in the meantime, the courts have now stepped in and shot down the gerrymandered districts. Do you think that's a game changer for that state? Well, it, it's funny because – and I got a lot of uh, heat for that uh, – you know, it's always funny – I feel like the best columns I write, I'll look at it. They only get like 10 comments. And then I write something that I'm just like, oh, I wonder how this will go. Uh, and it gets like 400 comments uh, because, uh, because you know, people go, oh, you're just saying Democrats are in disarray. Democrats are in disarray. Well, it's funny about North Carolina because, yeah, uh, a lot of people responded, oh, wait till the courts throw it out. Wait till the courts throw out the map. Well, they threw it out, and they just reinstituted a new map. And guess what? It's instead of gerrymandered 10 to 3 for Republicans – 10 House seats, uh, 10 to Republicans, 3 to Democrats. It's now 8 Republicans and 5 Democrats, and they're all uh-huh. very, very safe seats. So, um, I mean, I guess it's a slightly better. <laughs> you know, we've gone from extreme gerrymandering to uh, just pretty bad gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, think, I think that in a state that is, you know, Obama won that state. It has a Democratic governor right now. The fact that you have a House that's essentially guaranteed to be 8-5 for Republicans is still not a very good sign. And I think I, I think that, again, the, the elements that really support North Carolina being favorable to Republicans for a while, you know, there's a chance that it, it goes the way of Virginia a little bit, right? There's just so many um, – you know, here in Virginia, we've just gotten so many uh, – you know, so many – college-educated workers, and it's gotten so much more diverse, and it's attracted so many, uh, you know, uh, high-income earners uh, that, that it's gone uh, fairly blue. But for North Carolina, they just still have that the, – the capacity to not only gerrymander, but to just to, – to still have that favorable natural uh, – the kind of the natural bias, the self-sorting bias, because there's just such a large – rural and exurban population there. So I, I still stand by it. I think, I think North Carolina is going to be good, good Republican territory for a nice long while. And funny you should mention Virginia because that's what I was going to ask you about. Uh, next, you, you've written about Virginia and its transformation from a rock rib conservative state to a democratic state. Um, and I want to borrow one again from David that he mentioned on this show just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, Virginia has always been included, of course, in the list of southern states, the old dominion, the old confederacy. But wouldn't it be more accurate politically now, as, as David has mentioned, 
to perhaps identify Virginia not as a southern state anymore, but politically for certain as a mid-Atlantic state, say far more like Maryland than like, say, North Carolina that we just talked about. Well, well, my my mom's from uh, South Carolina and lives in Virginia now. I, I live in Virginia, and she uh-huh. would uh, never let you not call Virginia the South because that would mean she's no longer a Southerner. <laughs> and she's very proud of that. I I still think Virginia is Southern, and I think that the it will be in the long run. I think it will also remain in the South. I mean, I think certainly political handicappers now just kind of yeah. Where, there's Maryland, and there's uh, Delaware, there's Pennsylvania, let's throw it up there with it. But I think more of the political re- realignment is just happening up and down the entire 95 corridor. I mean, look at Georgia, um, the Carolinas. I, I, I think that long, long term, you know, I, this is actually kind of a subject of a, a chapter that's coming up, um, kind of about demographics and whether that's destiny or not. But I, I think the long, long term thing is um, you're going to have sun belts. Uh, starting to go a little bit blue, and I just think the the kind of this eastern seaboard I just see over the long term becoming a uh, uh, blue, and so yeah, maybe for the short term it's fun to put Virginia in the mid Atlantic, but what, what happens when North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia just because they're going to attract um, you know immigrant communities and there's going to be a more uh, higher educated and just kind of the natural sorting that's going to happen over the next 20, 30, 40 years, uh, you know, is there really going to be a meaningful political South? Uh, that's a, it's a really, really good question, but I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to shift Virginia into the Northern category just yet. All right. I appreciate it. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David to close the segment out. David. Yes. Well, David, I had not planned on asking a, another question, but I did, one did come up when, we talked about North Carolina. We talked about uh, Virginia. We've had two different North Carolina guests that both said the same thing about North Carolina, that in that state you have um, some areas that are very, very Republican, and you have some areas that are very, very Democrat, but you don't really have a lot of purple areas. Um, but my question is about Virginia. With it going so um, quickly to being a more of a blue state, more Democratic – but yet it has a lot of rural areas. I drove about two summers ago from Rome, Georgia, to Washington, D.C., and I went through a whole lot of Virginia that was very rural, um, I guess along through Blacksburg and whatnot. My question on that is, is Virginia turned Democratic just because um, it has so many you know, urban areas like suburban D.C. and uh, Richmond and Norfolk, or – are some of those rural areas, because it's Democratic, are some of those rural voters like, you know, our state's going to be Democratic, so if I want to be in play, maybe I better choose the best Democrat in the primary, and or is it still taking on the complexion of a rural area? Yeah, I, I think those rural areas, I mean, if you look at the 2019 midterm, Virginia has these weird off-off year elections. The state legislature was up just this past November. I mean, I think um, if you had any significant amount of rural, um, you know, real rural uh, territory in your district, it went red. I mean, we're talking 70, 80, 90 percent uh, votes for the Republican candidate, uh, even in even in areas that had really well funded, uh, you know, you can never 
this this Virginia past election is a great example because nearly every Democrat that was even in a marginally competitive race was extremely well funded over incumbents um, and had grassroots volunteers and had attention and everything like that. And uh, in the rural areas, they still got walloped, walloped. And I mean, I just envision a scenario where it's President Biden or President Warren and uh, things start to swing back the other way. I, I think the and you're already starting to see it in Virginia here. There are already been these huge rallies for Second Amendment sanctuary cities. I'm not sure if you're following this this issue, but um, you know, local local governments are passing ordinances saying, uh, you know, whatever whatever um, gun control bills are passed in Richmond, um, they won't have legal effect here in our county. Um, you know, I, I I don't think those will carry any legal significance, but the amount of activism that's going on in um, rural and exurban Virginia on guns uh, at this point kind of signals to me that, you know, one day one day a Democrat will be back in the White House, and there's a real, real shot that states like Virginia and North Carolina that just have these very, very large rural communities, I mean large, uh, you know, in aggregate, um, there's going to be a tremendous swing back, and they're going to be back in power again at some point. I, I don't think Virginia is a permanently blue state. Um, in any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Maryland's got a Republican governor. Massachusetts has a Republican governor. And I think Virginia Virginia is um, is a place where that, that the rural and exurban voters can really, really activate at some point and just punch way above their weight and uh, reassert power again. Yeah, showing up will kind of do that, and that's what uh, Republican voters are very good at. They show up like it's, you know, like it's Sunday school. I mean, they just are there. You know, habitually. Well, it's, uh, it's not, life and death. It's it's life and it's life and death for a lot of these. Uh, I think for I think for a lot of rural voters, um, rural Republican voters, uh, I think that to w- watching, especially a place like Virginia, um, start to drift away from the from kind of that traditional power structure. I think it's terrifying. I think it's frightening, and I think that um, it, whether it's guns or whether it's um, you know, religious freedom or it's healthcare, whatever issue, whatever the issue of the day is, they fight like it's like their lives are dependent on it. And I think, and I think that is going to increase the more that national politics strips away from them. Yes, and that's really a you know uh, Eric Thomas, the motivational speaker. Uh, if you really want something bad, you got to want it like you want air. If you're underwater. Um, well, David, we thank you so much for coming in, and we thank you for coming on early, but that way we can let you properly celebrate the first night of Hanukkah with the new baby, correct? Absolutely. That's right. That's right. This Sunday will oh, be, be so great. Yeah, that will be great. Well, um, just to our listeners, um, you know, if there's another piece coming out or when the next chapter might drop or what have you. Next chapter should be in uh, uh, January. Uh, it'll be on uh, public polling, which will be highly controversial, and so that's the, that's the fun stuff. And then, yeah, I'm hoping to write pieces about um, impeachment, and uh, especially I, I need to start making some predictions about who's going to win in 2020 and win the Democratic primaries, and that'll be really, really fun. Um, I think it's going to be Joe Biden, but I reserve the right to uh, change my mind here at any point. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess we all want that right as well. Um, well, David, uh, we're so excited. It sounds like we're going to need to have you on uh, vaguely sometime in March, it sounds like, if you get enough out there and inform our listeners then. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks again, David. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Take care. Yeah, happy holidays, Youth Hanukkah. Um, well, that was David Jonas, uh, one of our favorite guests with this uh, book that is just so different with the you know chapter by chapter. I think it's a good way to read a book a lot of times if, you, if you're real busy. Um, so if you're not a Political Wire member, it's just yet another reason to become one because you can get David Jonas's writings. I'm not sure if his special pieces are also members only, um, but it would just make it more worth it to you. Um, but Tim, I hope you have a good Christmas here in a little bit. I know you're going to cook and get ready for it. And we'll see Catherine next week when we're supposed to have uh, Dante Cheney, who is a resident and um, born and raised in Michigan. So, so we'll have that for Catherine's return. Sounds good. Good evening, okay. everyone. And the cozy vine. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be 